Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy, and you say here, but you know I'm in cold Connecticut and you're in warm Florida. But but anyway, we digress. Yes, I don't live in Florida, but I, I uh, each year I do take a little time to uh, to get down here. And the great thing is I can that the work can continue um, as it is today. Although I don't know, I don't know if I consider this work. Uh, it's it's really a great privilege to sort of represent our audience um, with the great scholar. So, and Andy, Andy, um, we, we uh, this is a nice place just to plug our website, and the website has additional show notes. Um, one thing that you should put up on the show notes is uh, a picture that you you took. Andy is an amazing photographer that you sent to me um, of. Uh, um, uh, a, a, a reptilian, um, a friend that you you, you made recently. Um, for those of you um, uh, you know who, who might be inclined, take a really close look um, at this um, photograph. It, it's quite amazing. It's a, it's it's an alligator that was pretty close to Andy. It's a beautiful picture of the alligator's head, but if you look, you can see the body in the in, in, in the water in a kind of very um, jaws dun 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 like way. So, and 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 Andy knows that I'm terrified uh, by alligators because because we spent time, of course, in, in Florida recently. But but audience members, if you want to check out um, uh, this picture, you won't be um, disappointed. Um, Andy is an amazing photographer, and this was a great great picture. Well, thank you. I think it made an impression on Akil for the very reason that I sent it to him, which is that he's terrified <laughs> of these things. <laughs> so it was meaningful to him. Anyway, um, so last week uh, we had an episode where we handled some of your questions, as, as had been long promised. And uh, judging from the response on the website and elsewhere, uh, it looks like that was popular. In fact, uh, I think that uh, this week we got more questions uh, as a follow-up than usual. The questions tend to be a reflection of things in the news, and you know, we one of the things that we like to do in the podcast is is address things that come up because they're on our audience's mind, and it's a, a way to get into deep constitutional questions through gate, gateways that are opened by the day's events. And uh, there's been a lot of news lately, um, some of which we're going to uh, talk about today. Um, of course, everyone's aware of uh, President Biden's. Uh, nomination of Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court as an associate justice um, re- to replace Justice uh, Stephen Breyer, whom she clerked for, um, as well as, of course, Professor Amar also clerked for Justice Breyer. Um, and as we were going through uh, in earlier episodes the backgrounds of justices, we we noted, you know, who had clerked for whom, and that was, you know, relevant. And when uh, Anthony Kennedy retired, then we had uh, Brett Kavanaugh was nominated, he had clerked for Anthony Kennedy, so this is a, a, a recurring motif. Anyway, we'll go, we get into some of these things um, later in the episode. I know you're all interested, and this is a way to keep you listening to the rest of the episode till we get into it. Um, and along the lines of the nomination, in preparation for the nomination, um, there were a number of, of op-eds uh, that appeared, of course, um, and one of them was written by um, the great Walter Dellinger. And in the news, Walter Dellinger passed away recently, um, sadly. And of course, Akil, you knew Walter Dellinger. You knew him well. 
I did indeed. And um, what we're going to do, I think, in this podcast is to to use his passing as an opportunity for me to to talk just a little bit about some of my um, role models in the profession, Um, because Walter was emphatically um, one of them. I think maybe we can talk about two or three today, some of the people that I personally hold in the highest regard. And in earlier episodes, um, people asked a little bit about, for example, how I write books. And I said, um, Judge Logue, for example, in a recent episode, and I said, well, you start by reading books. Um, And, you know, how do I become a professor of a certain sort? Well, I actually think about other professors. So who are the professors that I've um, tried to to learn from, to, to emulate in some ways, who have been role models? For me, Walter was emphatically one of them, and he just passed away. So I think that might be as Lincoln would say, altogether fitting and proper um, to, to talk just a little bit about um, his extraordinary wow. life, a life in, lived very much in the law. Um, and I hope I can maybe also talk about a couple of other people uh, uh, now gone uh, who, who have passed on um, who likewise were role models for me. Maybe in a future episode, I, I can talk about maybe some um, of my students um, who have been role models uh, for me. But, but today, maybe um, um, use Walter Dellinger's passing, one of the truly great lawyers of the late 20th and early 21st centuries, to talk a little bit about um, greatness um, in, in the law, um, what it looks like, um, and what we can learn from it. Now, of course, role models are not quite the same as mentors. Um, in, in a way, I suppose a role model can be a mentor, um, a personal mentor. You can also have a role model from afar. I mean, Lincoln, you know, might be a role model for many of us. Obviously, we have met him, don't have any. And of course, there was a book recently written by uh, uh, Michael Gerhardt on Lincoln's mentors. Um, and uh, so I'm interested, as you discuss these uh, role models for you, in uh, talking a little bit about mentoring as well, uh, and whether it's personal or otherwise. Great. And, and the three that I'm going to talk about are people whom I did meet in the flesh. And I'll, I'll maybe share with the audience a little bit about them as, as, as human beings and as, as mentors, as well as historical figures um, whom I also encountered because of their famous words and deeds um, that were more public. And I think you know our our podcast is attempting to show different elements of the legal ecosystem, constitutional law ecosystem, but the legal system uh, wider conceived. And uh, role models and you know is, are, are an important part of that because um, you know it's, you can learn from a book, but you can learn from an individual. And to what degree uh, is it the responsibility of people in the law, if you're a lawyer, to be a mentor to others? You know in medicine, we take the Hippocratic Oath, um, and in that we promise to teach for our entire lives. It's part of the commitment one makes in being a doctor. And so I'm, I'm wondering, you know, Akil, you know, to what degree you consider this the responsibility of lawyers as well as um, law faculty. Um, obviously, academics teaching is intrinsic to the role at some level, but this goes beyond mere teaching, I think. 
right, and the three people I'm going to talk about today, Walter Dellinger, Telford Taylor, and Charles Black, were all great law professors, um, teachers. Um, but um, since you talk about the podcast more generally and what we're trying to do and the legal ecosystem, truthfully, our audience has already begun to experience some of this because some of the people that we've had on the podcast, we've had precisely because um, I actually consider them um, mentors and mentions and, and role models. And that, that begins with Bob Woodward and, and um, um, 15 years my, my senior um, Neil Katyal, um, maybe an equal number of, of, of years, my junior, Nadine uh, Strassen. Um, we, we've had um, in, in, some extraordinary people already on the podcast, actually, because in various ways, my, uh, they've been my role models, the, the great Gordon Wood. Um, and those are um, four rather um, uh, different um, sorts of, uh, of careers. Nadine, really, as, a, as an activist, most of all. Uh, Nadine Strassen, Bob Woodward as a journalist and book author, Neil, um, a more a law professor, but also many other things, Gordon Wood, uh, um, not a legal academic, but, but a, a history professor. Before I begin telling you, um, and, and, and of course, we've had other great guests, why well, I just don't, I don't want to go through the whole list, but, but, but those four in particular, I think of as people that, that I've very self-consciously tried to model myself on in various ways. What is it about them that so moves me and how might I um, try to do something similar, um, inspired by, by their great examples? Uh, Judge Logue in an earlier um, episode kind of you know, asked me about my, my writing, and I said, again, it begins with, with reading. Um, I set out um, in America's Constitution, a biography, which was 2005, to write um, a book that would be accessible to a general audience and make a big splash. It's a big, ambitious book about constitutional law. The best-selling book of the previous generation uh, in co general constitutional law was written by someone. He actually had became later became a friend. His name was John Hart Ely. John Hart Ely went to Yale uh, Law School. He actually was a Princeton philosophy major, went to Yale Law School, uh, as, did, as did I, clerked for Earl Warren um, on the Supreme Court. As a, a law student, his best friend was Alan Dershowitz, who's been on um, our uh, podcast. Uh, Alan was editor-in-chief of the Yale Law Journal, and John Ely wrote what is by acclamation considered one of the five or ten greatest student notes in the history of student notes. A student note is a, is a, a legal essay written by a student. Um, and Ely's note was about the Bill of Attainder Clause, and Dershowitz helped him a lot on it. And, and then a year later, he clerks on for Earl Warren on the Supreme Court and takes the ideas of his student note and actually puts them in U.S. reports as um, the, the law of the land in, in the landmark opinion about the Attainder Clause called Brown versus United States. So that really happens that a year after you come up with your idea, it, it, the Chief Justice endorses it um, for, for a majority of, of, of the Supreme Court. Um, he helped Warren on the Warren Commission. He then was a public defender, and then he began a career as a legal professional. I started at Yale Law School, where he got tenure when no one else in his generation did. Then for personal reasons, at least that's what people at Yale like to say, um, went off to Harvard, because of course you'd never go to Harvard Law School just for, you know, uh, for anything other than, than, than some a, a personal reason. It could never be that Harvard Law School might in some ways be better <laughs> 
it is in some ways better. Um, uh, but he, he, he leaves um, Yale to go to Harvard Law School, um, where he becomes the Ralph S. Tyler professor at Harvard, a position later held by, by Larry Tribe. Then he later leaves to go to Stanford Law School, where he becomes dean. As dean at Stanford Law School, he actually hired me um, when I was on the teaching market. I ended up at Yale instead. Why am I mentioning John Ely, who's not one of the, the three that um, I'm going to talk about today, although I'd be delighted to talk about him at, at some point because he's you know, a really, really impressive person law, because he wrote an epically important book called Democracy and Distrust. It was, in, in the late 70s, the best-selling book on American constitutional law for an entire generation or generation and a half, and that was a model for me. That was, in effect, the, the book that I wanted, as it were, to, to, to write for, for, for my generation. And it's called Dem- Democracy and Distrust, A Theory of Judicial Review. And there was only, in my view, one other book in um, the, uh, its era that rivaled it in, in terms of its real excellence. Uh, that was a book by Philip Bobbitt called Constitutional Faith. The books came out about the same time. Ely's got a lot more attention than Bobbitt's. I think Bobbitt's was... was um, uh, in its own way, you know, every bit is good in certain ways um, better. Bobbitt, like Ely, and he's been on our podcast. He's a role model for me, obviously. Um, um, uh, Bobbitt was a Princeton philosophy major, as was Ely. They both end up at Yale Law School as, um, uh, as students. But democracy and distrust was um, the Bible for, again, maybe a generation of law students trying to learn, uh, uh, just get a comprehensive understanding of American constitutional law. Akil, do you feel that democ- do you feel that democracy and distrust is a book that has stood up well that that our listeners would be well advised to read now? It, it has, but it's um, it's a period piece, and um, maybe it's a little closer to mid-century modern than to lava lamps, uh, moon rocks, or something. I, so um, uh, I think mid-century modern has aged very well. Um, lava lamps, not so much. Um, I think democracy and trust in between, and I'll, I'll say maybe a word or two about that. But, and I know we want to talk about Walter Dellinger, of course, but this is all by way of saying, here's what John Ely said in the, on the dedication page of his book. He said, for Earl Warren, Dash, you don't need many heroes if you choose carefully. Now, here's the part of that book that's aged for me especially well. Choose your heroes carefully. And I'm not, now not so sure that you, you don't need many. Maybe we need lots, all sorts of heroes and heroines in different ways. So I'm not sure about that. Although, of course, it's, you know, if you're, um, if you're dedicating a book to someone, you really want to make them feel very you know, special and singular. Um, but here's what John Ely was saying. Choose your heroes carefully. Um, and I think I have. It's been one of my secrets to success is I've actually paid particular attention to some folks more than others. John Ely himself, uh, absolutely. In a nutshell, here was Sean Ely's theory. It was um, very holistic, um, looking at the Constitution as a whole. And there were crit, and it was a defense of the Warren Court. I actually read this book um, on my own and then actually also experienced it when Robert Bork um, taught me a class on constitutional law and, and this book was a, a one of the books he taught and I remember Bork harumphing or something um, and he and Ely overlapped as professors on the Yale Law School faculty and in fact in the book Democracy and Distrust um, Ely actually has a little discussion of, of himself 
and Robert Bork at Alex Bickle's funeral. It's a, it's a very, um, Alex Bickle was um, a, a mentor, um, a hero to both of them, a, a teacher uh, of sorts, um, a, a, a earlier generation. So, I mean, it's coming full circle because Ely is really thinking about Bickle, there's a, a part of the book called The Odyssey of Alexander Bickle, and he recounts the story at Bickle's funeral, you know, so about, um, thinking about a, a person's legacy. So, um, um, Bickle is the generation before um, Ely, just as Ely is the generation before me. Dellinger is uh, Ely's generation. So John Ely's book is a defense of the Warren Court. Um, and I, I remember Bork corrupting as if there could be such a thing, because Bork didn't think the Warren Court could be defended. And and the critics of the Warren Court said, oh, they just made stuff up. And John Ely said, no. They actually didn't. They had a theory of the Constitution. It wasn't always um, fully articulate on the surface. But if you step back and see that war in court as a whole and see the Constitution as a whole, it's about um, protecting democracy in general, things like the right to vote and, uh, and, and free political discourse. But it's also about protecting a certain kind of um, set of rights where democracies might fail. Um, when when a majority tries to disfranchise a, a, a minority um, or shut down um, free speech critical of uh, the majority or incumbents, or where a certain group in the, um, the Supreme Court case laws, there's a phrase, discrete and insular minority that can't ordinarily protect itself well in the political process um, um, is the subject of special kind of prejudice that might actually um, and make democracy unattractive or at least problematic. Discrete and insular minorities, um, paradigmatically, this is a, a, a phrase that uh, appeared in a very famous footnote, perhaps the most famous footnote in all of um, U.S. reports, Caroline Products, footnote 4, 1938. And I think the court was thinking about um, Jews, blacks, uh, maybe Jehovah's Witnesses, paradigmatically discreet insular minorities, the subject of a lot of prejudice. Jews are maybe 2% of American population, um, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism back then, especially in 1938. Um, blacks actually had been disfranchised, and, and again, a, a small um, uh, uh, minority that maybe wasn't um, um, well-protected by the majoritarian political process, um, Jehovah's Witnesses. So Ely had a comprehensive theory about the Constitution, its largest themes, and how to make sense of it and the case law, um, and he's going beyond what he called clause-bound interpretivism, sort of textual literalism. But he wasn't, um, he thought, simply making up his, you know, um, his own personal philosophy and reading it into the Constitution. He was trying to read between the lines and see the Constitution in its largest sense, its, its large themes. And the, one of the persons that he openly identifies as hit a role model for him, influencing him above and beyond Earl Warren, who was not a great legal theoretician, but, but, but you know, a very um, compelling um, judicial figure. But he said, ah, my vision of holism is very much inspired by Charles Black. And we're, Black is going to be one of the three people I talk about. His three biggest protégés were probably, um, maybe four, John Ely, Walter Dellinger, maybe four or five, um, uh, uh, John Ely, Walter Dellinger, um, Philip Bobbitt, Bruce Ackerman, and yours truly. We are all very much Charles Black disciples. Walter and 
Philip most emphatically because they were Southern liberals, um, as was white Southern liberals, as was Charles Black. But Ely was very influenced by Black. I've been influenced by Black. So, um, and influenced by Ely, and influenced by Ackerman, and influenced by Dellinger, and influenced by Bobbitt, all of Black's protégés. We talked about some of this when I was talking about history and, and, and the genealogies. Okay, well, Bernard Balin and, and Ed Morgan both have the same teacher, and then Balin had certain protégés like Gordon Wood, and Morgan had certain protégés like yours truly. Well, there's a similar structure in the legal academy, and there are sort of families of discipleship um, and, and mentorship and, and, and certain genealogical traditions. And, uh, and, and Walter... And John Ely were both influenced, as was I, um, and Philip, um, by Charles Black. But this line from Ely, because Ely wrote the book that actually made the biggest splash, for Earl Warren, you don't need many heroes if you choose carefully. Um, And Democracy and Distrust was a really influential book for me. Now, here's how it's aged well and not aged well, because, you you know, um, it's a theory not of the Constitution as a whole, but of... um, the judicial role. And I tried to go beyond it by theorizing the Constitution as a whole, but there was a little section in Ely's book saying, here's a little brief tour of the Constitution as a whole and its themes. I think, gee, why a brief tour? We need a, a, you know, a bigger tour. But Ely saw it first, you see, and Ely said in, in that book, actually, the Constitution um, was designed to be more democratic than anything that had happened before. He didn't follow up on that, and, and he didn't realize he was even writer than he knew, but, but oh, um, that idea has aged well. The Constitution was supposed to be democratic. Um, I picked up on that. He says in passing, oh, and the amendments have actually added to democracy. They've made the Constitution even more democratic. And I say, wow, that's a really brilliant insight. And let's pay, pay attention to the vector of time. Because the amendments are added like so many postscripts, we can easily see the chronological theme. And most of the amendments have indeed added to democracy um, in various um, ways. The right to vote, for example, didn't appear in the original Constitution, but in five of the amendments, the 14th Amendment, Section 2, 15th Amendment, Section 1, 19th Amendment, Section 1, 24th and 26th Amendments. So where, so those are Ely themes I think have aged very well. You have to think about democracy. You have to think about the Constitution as a whole. Um, you have to think about the, the trend of uh, amendments, pay attention to actually not just what the Constitution says, but how it came into existence democratically. Here's where it hasn't aged so well. Ely basically thought courts should protect democracy, but otherwise shouldn't try to protect fundamental values. So he said, oh, and he should especially protect discrete and insular minorities. Here's where he did not predict the cases. So, for example, women are not discrete, not insular, not a minority. You could say, well, on Ely's grounds, they, they, they don't qualify on Carolyn Price footnote four. They can protect themselves in the political process. And yet, actually, courts um, strike down laws all the time as violating gender equality, even though women can vote equally. And an abortion is complicated. We're not going to relitigate that. I see Andy's eyes lighting up because we, we talked a little bit about that in our uh, abortion episodes. But let's just bracket that for now. Affirmative action, Ely says, might be right, might be wrong. Judges don't need to worry about it because the majority can protect itself politically. And if the, the, the racial majority gives too much to the racial minority, courts shouldn't worry about that. Oh, but courts today do worry about that. And that's the Harvard case that's coming up before the court. So, so Ely's 
purported to be not just prescriptive, telling the judges what to do, but also descriptive, saying this is what actually the courts are in fact doing. So it sounds like um, what you're saying is that, or what Eli is saying, your counting of it, um, is that uh, he's if you can protect the right to vote um, and and democracy in general, then solutions can be found in the legislature. Right. They, the other things that's where you should themselves. look for your for your answers beyond you know right. democracy. So Ely doesn't have a really great defense of privacy rights because you can say, well, people can protect their own privacy by voting. Um, so he wasn't great on Griswold versus Connecticut, which, of course, you know, expanded very dramatically rights to privacy after that. Um, um, why should we ever protect, for example, states' rights? But courts do. You could say states are represented in the political process, and your courts say, oh, the federal government has intruded upon states' rights. Why should you ever protect the presidency in cases like um, the, line, the um, line item, uh, excuse me, the legislative veto case, INS versus Chada? You know, presidents can protect themselves. A case called Zivotofsky about um, uh, 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 presidential recognition rights, because you could say, well, the president can protect himself. He plays a role in the veto process. So some of Ely's ideas have, um, to the extent he was trying to actually describe actual judicial practice, uh, some of it hasn't aged perfectly. But, oh, there's a lot of impressive stuff in John Ely's book. But I was particularly struck because I, um, Walter Dellinger is a great man, and we'll, I want to talk about Walter now because he's just passed. Um, but he didn't quite write a book like Democracy and Distrust that was a model for me the way John Ely's was. But I do think it's interesting that both Dellinger and Ely were very much influenced by Charles Black, who did write some books, and Black directly influenced me and, oh, not so coincidentally, Philip Bobbitt, who we've talked about a lot in this podcast and has been our guest. And, um, Bruce Ackerman, who has influenced me in all sorts of ways, even uh, though I, I sometimes disagree with him. And of course, you're describing, you know, an intellectual uh, inspiration. You know that your your thought on the Constitution is inspired by these these thoughts, Charles Black's thoughts, uh, Walter Dellinger's thought, maybe um, John Ely's thoughts, um, and that they they come from a in a sense the same tree. That these are branches off the same tree. Um, mm-hmm. So you might say, well, that isn't really that great to have your role models. If you have a few role models and they all come from the same tree, it's really the same role model in a sense. Um, so because because it's it's an intellectual role model and they're saying the same things. So, um, but on the other hand, there are other ways that one can be a role model, you know, pers- on a personal level um, and so forth. So I think that uh, it would be interesting to see as you describe. Walter Dellinger and Charles Black in particular, since you didn't include Telford Taylor in this intellectual tree. Um, no, that, uh, he, he, that, he descends from a different one, mm-hmm. um, actually. Um, uh, but, 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 but just not to finish my, my sentence here, oh. um, it'd be interesting to see how they are, maybe they have something in common as role models for you, but they also provide different things to you as well. Yes, and, and they actually aren't all saying the same thing, even if you know they're part of the same tree. Oh, the tree has many branches and, and, and leaves to, to continue the, the metaphor. They may be writing about different topics. So these are not the same person at all, even. And, and, and of course, um, if, if we're going all the way back, you could say, well, all philosophy is footnotes to Plato. It is said proverbially. But if we went from Socrates to Plato to Aristotle, which is again an intellectual lineage, 
Aristotle doesn't agree with Plato on all sorts of things. And um, so um, he's pushing back against his mentors. And, 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 and I already mentioned, oh, Bruce Ackerman um, is my mentor, but I push back against him. Philip Bobbitt, our audience knows, even though we're both influenced by Charles Black, and even though I'm influenced by, by, by Bobbitt, who is 10 years my senior, we disagree. We disagreed pretty, you know, dramatically on, on the impeachment issues, and our audience heard all that. Oh, by the way, the person who wrote the first little book on impeachment was Charles Black. The second edition was a posthumous edition. I'm not sure, maybe it wasn't posthumous, can't remember, but where I actually did a revised edition of the Black Impeachment Handbook. And the third edition is when Bobbitt did a much more substantial revision of the Black Impeachment Handbook. And so Charles had one set of ideas. I had a slightly different set. I actually said, I agree with most of this, but here's one thing where I think I respectfully you know, disagree. Um, Bobbitt took it in his own direction. And you see Amar and Bob, you, our audience remembers Amar and Bobbitt, you know, vigorously disagreeing about some pretty big impeachment issues, even though, you know, on other things we agree. Okay. Well, this is fascinating. And uh, of course, we've been talking for a half hour and now it's time to do what we said we're going to do and talk about Walter Dellinger. Yes. So we're going to put up some of the obituaries um, on the website. There's a, a one written by Clay. I can't remember if his name is pronounced Risen or Risen in the New York Times. And I've worked with Clay. He used to be the op-ed's editor. Um, and another uh, actually tribute essay by our friend Jesse Wegman in the New York Times. In fact, and Jesse, of course, our audience will remember, um, came on recently and did two episodes with us. But he has a tribute essay to well, Walter. Another lovely tribute essay is by Adalia Lithwick. It's in Slate. Um, and we'll put that one up as well. I actually sent her a thank you note because um, I thought Adalia is an amazing writer, uh, Yale College graduate, by the way. And I think um, her writerly virtues were very much on display in this tribute essay. Walter Dellinger had been a, a long standing contributor to Slate and had done various things with Slate, including things that invite, involved me thing called the breakfast table that he and Dahlia helped them think up that I was involved in from time to time. It was at the end of a Supreme Court term, getting a a few people together to sort of comment as if they were proverbially um, at a breakfast table together and sort of talking about the latest developments. So the the obits capture some of Walter's survival statistics. Here are some things for the audience to know. Walter Dellinger grows up in modest circumstances as a white Catholic in the Bible Belt, in the South, um, uh, Carolinas, I believe. His father passes away when he's still a lad, um, so a single-parent family. Um, And from an early age, he, I think, um, understands what the world looks like from the minority point of view, maybe maybe because of his um, Catholicism. There was organized um, public prayer um, in the public schools, and, um, and whenever that organized prayer happened, because they would use the King James Version of the Bible, and uh, which is a Protestant version, and other kind of Protestant texts, I remember him his telling me a story once about how he would um, he and one Jewish boy would actually have to sort of walk out um, and they would clean erasers or something. Um, but they, in effect, every day were forced to to stand out, to stand apart, 
um, while everyone else um, or almost everyone else they gathered together as a community and um, and um, and and so and he understood what it then kind of felt like to be excluded in that way. He eventually ends up at Yale Law School. Um, I think he, uh, he back then they had interviews for the law school, and he, I think he hitchhiked his way um, uh, up north to interview. I think he was maybe even late for the interview or something, but he was a spectacular storyteller. So I think this, the you know raconteur. So I, I think that the, the 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 tale that he that he spun about why he was late maybe is what got him in. It, it, it charmed the, the admissions folks. He ended up working very hard and doing very well, um, graduating at the top of his class, and. 1966, I think, Yale Law School um, graduate and impresses a, a young Guido Calabresi, um, then young professor, also um, Catholic American, in, in fact, an Italian immigrant. So who um, does Dellinger end up clerking for? Well, of course, if you're putting it all together, it would be the great Hugo Black, a Southern, white, liberal, the driving force of the Warren Court, actually. And, and so when Ely is defending the Warren Court, he's really defending Hugo Black and Charles Black defended the Warren Court. He was defending um, uh, the work product of, of Hugo Black. And Hugo Black, you see, who's one of my role models, I never met him, had been a Klansman um, early in life. Um, you had to be, he, Hugo Black was ambitious. He wanted to be a senator. He was a senator from Alabama, just like Jeff Sessions. He was a senator from Alabama, um, uh, more, more recently and, and, and famously. And apparently, you know, if uh, you had to be a Klansman to get elected. Um, and and the fact that he was a Klansman came out at the very end of the confirmation process. He was a senator, and the Senate was confirming a fellow senator, and, and he kind of didn't, um, and he wasn't, um, I think I think he was out of town or something when, when the confirmation process uh, went through, and there were these rumors or these stories about Klan membership, and he never quote, quite um, acknowledged them, but it did come out, um, very soon um, thereafter, or right at the end of the confirmation. Again, it's a little complicated that he was a Klansman. Um, but here's why I'm telling you all that. The Klan was every bit as much anti-Semitic and anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant as it was anti-Black. And Hugo Black was none of those things in his heart. Okay, And it's really interesting to me, since we're talking about mentors, the people that he chose to hire as his law clerks. And um, uh, we're going to talk about law clerks, uh, maybe uh, because of what's in the news with Contenji Brown Jackson. The people he chose to hire as his law clerks, the person whom he mentored, whom he became very close to in life, disproportionately immigrant Catholics and Jews. Charles Reich, Jewish American, closeted gay, um, wrote um, uh, one of my other heroes and, and, and role models, wrote The Greening of America uh, later in life. When Black's wife, died, his first wife died, he asked Charles to live with him, Charles Reich. Um, that, that wasn't to be PC. They were generally friendly, and each was kind of lonely, and, and each really befriended the other. But Charles Reich is Jewish, you see, and openly so. And Guido Calabresi, you know, Italian-born, name is Guido, very in, um, um, uh, ethnic name. Very Catholic, and actually Guido is genealogically um, Jewish as well. His his mother um, was a, a Catholic convert, Bianca Maria Finzi Contini. Um, but the Finzi Contini's were actually a very famous Italian Jewish family, like like the Rothschilds, and mm-hmm. and I think the Calabresi's on the other side were also Jewish. So so ethnically Jewish, you know, personally Catholic, you know, Italian born immigrant, and 
and Hugo Black hires this guy, you know, to be his law clerk. And, and, and later he's going to hire Walter Dellinger, our friend Steve Sussman, Jewish American um, scholarship kid at, at, at Yale College. Another um, Hugo Black clerk late in life. So I'm mentioning all that because some people who don't know so much say, oh, Hugo Black, you know, Klansman or something. And it's not really fair. Um, What's well, true, but it's not really complete. Um, and it, um, and you know that in the book, The Words That Made Us, which I haven't plugged in the last um, uh, 25 seconds, I try to talk a lot about the arcs of certain persons' careers. Who, who gets better over time? Uh, like Washington, um, Franklin, who actually um, uh, increasingly disappoints um, as, as they age, Jefferson and Madison. Hugo Black re- rejected all of that early bigotry that was part of his um, uh, life story, even though I think it was actually never truly part of, of his inner life. Um, in the book Scorpions, Noah Feldman um, goes into this uh, business about Hugo Black and the Klan and his confirmation um, in some detail. Um, and in that book, um, Noah, who is my student, and for whom I am not a role model, frankly, I think if you ask Noah, you would say, oh, not, oh, definitely not Akilah Mar. And I'm, I'm actually critical of some of Noah's uh, recent work, as, as you know, um, a book on Lincoln that, that I don't like called The Broken Constitution and, and a book on Madison that I actually um, I have some critical things to say about um, in um, the words that made us, even though I also acknowledge it, some of its, its interesting insights. Noah's book, Scorpions, I'm a bigger fan of. Um, it was earlier than his Madison book and his Lincoln book. Um, and it's called Scorpions because it, um, the, the, the phrase is the Supreme Court, sort of nine scorpions trapped in a bottle. It's a kind of a very, con, uh, con, you know, you're, you're trapped in this small uh, space with, with a bunch of people and, and each of them is out for himself or herself now today. But the four that Feldman highlights um, who are four really interesting and big characters who have different visions of law and life. Hugo Black, who will become a leading originalist, textualist. William Douglas, former Sterling professor of, of law at Yale, who will become kind of libertarian and, um, and living constitutionalist. Felix Frankfurter, who will become an apostle of judicial restraint and Harvard professor. Um, and... Um, Robert Jackson. Robert Jackson and Hugo Black, you know, don't have fancy law degrees. Felix Frankfurter does, a Harvard guy. William Douglas is Columbia and uh, and, and Yale. You know, some were low-born. Um, Frankfurter's an immigrant. Four very different biographies. But the book, Scorpions, is about how they actually came to conflict with each other, even though they were all FDR appointees, you see. But they end up, and so they agree that, that, that basically the court should stop doing Lochner, okay, they agree with that. That's what they put on the court for that. But over the years, different issues arise and they move in different directions. And I mention that to you now because we're going to talk about Telford Taylor. You see, and Telford Taylor is a Frankfurter protege. And Walter Dellinger is a Hugo Black protege. And Charles Black is on the Hugo Black side. And I'm on the Hugo Black side. But Telford Taylor is a completely different lineage. Not at all the same tree, Andy, to, mm-hmm. to use your metaphor. Um, and yet, you see, yes, we need we need to find all sorts of role models. Maybe we don't need to actually, you know, um, unlike what John Ely said, he said you don't need many um, role models if you choose carefully. Maybe we, we need lots. 
Um, now, one final thing um, apropos this, since you know, I'm, I'm telling the story of, of the really interesting figures in the 20th century um, on the court um, and in, in the academy. So who is Earl Warren you know, and the Warren court? We see him as this crusading liberal, um, you know, heading up a famously liberal court. Here's my take on the thing. Earl Warren was not the thinker. The thinker was Hugo Black. Hugo Black is identifying what will become the themes of the Warren court before Warren and Brennan even are on the court. And the themes are going to be, some of these are Caroline Products footnote four themes. That's 1938. Black is on the court, you see, but not actually Earl Warren or or William Brennan or these other um, uh, Warren court luminaries. So here are some of the themes. One person, one vote. Well, that's um, um, uh, uh, incorporating or applying the Bill of Rights against the states, protecting broad political expression, free speech, getting rid of prayer in the public schools, protecting the rights of criminal um, uh, uh, defendants, especially um, uh, indigent ones, um, and, and ending Jim Crow. Okay, These are the big Warren Court themes, and they're almost all Hugo Black themes in dissent initially before... Warren even shows up. Black is the driving intellectual force of the Warren court. He's an originalist, textualist in some ways, and Ely, he understands that. Ely, um, um, and, and who's his um, antagonist? Felix Frankfurter, again and again and again, is actually opposing some of these ideas, and, and Black only prevails in the end when Frankfurter is kind of off the court. That's when he finally gets five votes to, to take his dissents um, and turn them into majority opinions. He writes, Black does, Gideon versus Wainwright, saying indigents have a, a right to appointed counsel if they can't afford it. He had authored a dissent on, on that issue in 1943, a case called um, Betts versus Brady, and, and Frankfurt had the votes then. Okay. So it's Black's court, but Black's, it's Black's court intellectually, because he, 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 he got there first and he defined the agenda, but it's going to prevail only if Warren goes along. And who is Warren? Warren is a Republican appointed by a Republican president, um, a, a former prosecutor in California. He actually um, had advocated for Japanese and Japanese-American internment. So he's not yet the, Warren, the Earl Warren that we know. Who makes him the Earl Warren that we know? Well, because I have mentors and role models, and they've talked to me. Here's the story that I was told by none other than Charles Reich, who clerked for... Hugo Black and lived with him when Black's first wife died because Black was lonely. To hear Charles tell the story, Warren comes on the court. He, he hasn't gone to a fancy school. He's feeling a little bit insecure. And Felix Frankfurter shows up basically and starts giving him <laughs> remedial lessons in constitutional law, you know, with his pince-nez, you know, and, and wagging his finger, you know, because that's how we professors can be. And Warren, of course, he's a very very polished politician, listens very attentively and courteously. And, and Frankfurt, I'm sure, thinks he's making great progress because the chief is always, you know, willing to, to listen to him when he, you know, Felix Frankfurt ordains to shower these pearls of wisdom in, on this rube from California. In fact, unbeknownst to Frankfurt, and this is the problem with us professors, you see, he's actually losing uh, Warren because he's overplaying his hand and, and, and being just a jerk. Um, uh, about the thing. Hugo Black just watches all of this. 
Uh, Warren is governor of California, um, former governor and black former senator from Alabama. They have a lot in common. Okay. They, they don't have fancy law degrees, but they're really, really smart people. Um, and, and, and so black just watches all of this, according to Charles Reich. Um, and then at a certain point, after several months, um, and, 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 and uh, Frank Ritter's overplaying his hand, invites Earl Warren over to dinner. And proverbially throws some shrimp on the barbie. Actually, it's I think a really good steak that he puts on the barbecue. Great bottle of wine, red. Um, and um, you know how much law they talk that day? None. They're just getting to know each other. You know, just friend to friend. And 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 to hear Charles say it, Hugo Black gradually reels in Earl Warren and makes him basically kind of an intellectual and personal disciple of. The, the Hugo Black vision of, of constitutional law in the world. Anyone that's read Robert Caro's books uh, about, especially Master of the Senate, um, rec- can recognize the uh, the Johnson treatment um, <laughs> there and LBJ's uh, court- courtship of Sam Rayburn, the Speaker of the House, for example. Hugo Black was underestimated. Um, George Bush would say misunder. George W. Bush would say misunderestimated or something because he was proverbially a, a hick from the sticks. He's from the Southland. He speaks with the drawl. He didn't go to a fancy school. He's largely self-taught. And Felix Frankfurt makes one of the biggest mistakes of his life when he underestimates this guy because this guy didn't go to Harvard because Black was really smart and self-taught and, and a very impressive politician. Hugo Black is in the Abraham Lincoln tradition, you see. And at the very end of our podcast, we may talk a little bit about that because there are these issues um, that are floating about the, the Katenji Brown Jackson nomination. And we'll talk about fancy schools and, and, and what um, background or resume you need to have today to get on the Supreme court and how that may be different than in a world where you have Earl Warren and Hugo, who was never a judge um, and um, Hugo Black was never a judge and Robert Jackson was never a judge and, um, uh, William Douglas was never a judge and Felix Frankfurt was never a judge. And two of these guys, you know, didn't even have three years of standard law school education, um, Robert Jackson and, 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 and Hugo Black. And yet they are reckoned among the, the greatest justices you see. And so, so Scorpions is a good book. I do recommend that. Um, I'm, I can't say the same thing about Noah's most recent book about Abraham Lincoln. I really find myself sharply, sharply, critical of it. We can talk about that in a later episode. And, and I think his book on Madison is, is um, decidedly mixed. That was book. So getting back to, of course, Walter Dellinger, which is how we got onto this. So Walter Dellinger clerks for Hugo Black. And, and again, they're somewhat similar white progressive Southerners. Um, he gets his first teaching gig, and, and you can guess where it would be. It would be in the Southland. It's actually at Ole Miss. It's really, really reactionary place. And this is the 60s. Since you mentioned Lyndon Johnson, you know, right after the civil, uh, Lyndon Johnson's president has pushed through the Civil Rights Act of 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965. He is in the process of pushing the Housing Act, uh, Fair Housing Act of, of 1968. So Dellinger and his wife, Anne, start at Ole Miss, they later um, moved to Duke um, Law School, where um, Dellinger distinguishes himself as um, a, a constitutional scholar, writing important articles on many important topics, 
in fancy places like the Harvard Law Review, including important articles about the constitutional amendment process, um, taking us back to the ERA episodes and, and Jesse Wegman. So a distinguished career as uh, an academic. Um, he also, he and his wife, Anne, um, uh, start a family that's going to be relevant. They have two sons, one of whom, Hampton, is going to actually uh, come to Yale Law School, be my protege um, and uh, one of my favorite students of all time, who is now in administration picking judges. Um, so we're coming full circle here. Because um, uh, if you ask me what makes for, you know, total, you know, a greatness in being a real mensch, oh, Walter Dellinger had it all. He was a great thinker and, and, and professor, um, but he was also a good husband. And, and his, his wife at the end of her life suffered, I think, some dementia. He took wonderful care of her and father. And I know that because Hampton is one of the best students I've ever had. And, 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 and that's because his, his folks raised him right. You know, just like Matthew Lipka and Carolyn Lipka and, and, and Rachel Lipka, who, you know, who were, who were raised right uh, um, uh, by Andy and Wendy. So a great professor, a great um, family person, um, a great teacher. I'll say a little bit more about that. Um, um, but he will also go on to have really significant careers as a government servant and as a private lawyer. So, wow, the whole package. Dellinger um, will later become head of the Office of Legal Counsel under um, President Clinton, who's Clinton, a Southern, white, liberal, Yale Law School graduate. You know, married to another Yale Law School graduate. Um, uh, and um, Walter Dellinger is the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, which gives special advice to the president and, and the executive branch, especially about separation of powers issues. Other heads of the Office of Legal Counsel uh, very famously have included William Rehnquist, who will become Chief Justice, uh, who became Chief Justice under Richard Nixon, Anton Scalia. Uh, who became chief justice? Uh, who became a justice um, uh, uh, under Ronald Reagan? So the OLC is a really important office of legal counsel is a really important position. Dellinger is head of that, and then he's acting solicitor general of the United States under Clinton, um, arguing on behalf of the United States in the United States Supreme Court. And other people who've been famous solicitors generals, as we've talked about before, include Thurgood Marshall and Elena um, uh, Kagan, um, uh, uh, Robert Bork, um, Ken. Uh, Star, uh, Robert Jackson, uh, many others. Of course, um, Neil Katyal was acting Solicitor General. I was, I was about to say, Neil was acting Solicitor General, as was Walter. And why was Walter acting Solicitor General? Because he couldn't get confirmed by the Senate because he was basically filibustered. And why was he filibustered? He was filibustered because he had, um, maybe it was technically blue-slipped, back then, but he was opposed by the senators from his home state, um, including Jesse Helms, who didn't like him because he had spoken out against Robert Bork and had crusaded for racial justice. So here's another thing I'm telling our audience. Um, Great people aren't always universally adored. They they take stands, they make enemies, and they know they're making enemies. And, And I would say... Walter Dellinger, he made some enemies, but, but maybe he made just the right enemies. I admire Walter Dellinger's principled sense, even when I don't always, didn't always agree with him. But you know, to be so fiercely opposed by Jesse Helms, in a certain way, that was a badge of honor uh, because it meant that Walter Dellinger would actually stand up for what he believed in, even if it was going to cost him uh, personally and politically. 
you know, just to recap, um, he, he's, he's low born, um, single family, uh, uh, single parent, manages to get to Yale Law School, do brilliantly academically, clerk for the Supreme Court, um, write impressive articles, now start to move into impressive government service, head of the Office of Legal Counsel, acting solicitor general of the United States. Um, and then Late in life, he becomes um, a, um, a Supreme Court litigator uh, in, in, for a private law firm, um, par excellence, just like Neil Katyal is, you know, an academic and um, acting solicitor general, and now the head of a major appellate litigation practice um, at a firm called Hogan Levels. It used to be Hogan and Hartson. John Roberts was... Um, again, very impressive academically, the uh, managing editor of the Harvard Law Review, um, top clerkships. He was briefly acting solicitor general under Ken Starr, and he was the, appellate, the, the preeminent Supreme Court litigator pri- uh, in private practice of, of his era at Hogan. And when he left, that position basically went unfilled until they could find someone big enough to fill it. And that person's name is Neil Katyal. So when you think of Walter Dellinger, what, what comes to mind for you? Is there any specific incident or interaction or action that he took or something that, that is the quintessential Walter Dellinger? This is why he is a role model for me. Yes. Let me identify so many. Um, he mentored so many people, uh, um, women as well as men, um, people like Dahlia Lithwick, people like Don, D-A-W-N Johnson, um, who will later become an important um, head, head of the OLC in, in, in her own right, champion for rights of women. Um, he actually, um, um, uh, reproductive rights and other uh, and equality rights uh, for women, just tremendous champion of women's rights. Um, Walter took a different position than did I on ERA. Um, he, he, you know, and I, th- I think in part, just because, you know, he so believes in ERA and he says it's so damn hard to amend the Constitution, let's not add, you know, a, a unnecessary obstacles. Our audience has heard my contrary uh, position on that. It's not that I have a different view of, of women's equality, but I do have a different view of the Article 5 process. Um, so, again, you can, you can have heroes and not agree with, with everything that they say. So he was a great mentor. Um, he had, uh, um, was a great scholar. Um, oh, and on mentoring, when he was head of the Office of Legal Counsel, he actually called me up, and this is before, when he, did, he made those first offered the job and said, Akil, would you like to be my assistant, you know, my, my right hand? And it was a really generous offer. And I'm saying this because I think in his mind he's rather aware that I'm a person of color, okay? Um, this is very important. We're going to talk about his last uh, um, op-ed, all about actually Biden's commitment to pick a woman, uh, a black woman, um, for the su- Supreme Court, I was going to say woman of color, but a black woman uh, to be even more precise. Um, Walter comes from a Southland and understands actually that non-whites um, for much of American history haven't been given a fair shot. And, and he was going to try to do whatever he could to, 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 to remedy that. So he offered me a position. I ended up saying thanks so much, but you know, I, I just want to keep, I want to stay at Yale and, and, and try to make my mark as a, as an academic, but went out of his way to mentor all sorts of people. Neil Katyal, one of his, his mentees, out of his way to encourage people um, younger than him. I'm going to actually read an email 
that that he he sent me. I, Andy, I know you've seen it before, but not that many professors who are idea people are really actually great in legal practice where you, you have to get along with other people. You're part of a team. See, professors kind of live in, in their own head. Um, um, professors can be sometimes too theoretical. Lawyers have to be sort of very uh, practical. Um, so he was a very impressive lawyer. He was a great listener. He was a good mimic, very good mimic. He could, um, and, and, I, and you can't be a great mimic unless you actually listen to people, both how they speak and what they're saying. And then you, you can be really funny by kind of riffing on them and, and doing funny imitations of, of stuff. I'll tell you one story. He had a great sense of humor. He's a wonderful storyteller. Many Southerners are. Uh, I'll tell you a story, um, but before I do that, he also, even though he was really good to people below him, he was also very respectful of people who had come before, especially he was a, an absolutely devoted um, uh, um, student mentee of the great Charles Black, who was the only Southern, who uh, was a professor at Yale, um, Southern, from Southern uh, Texan, the only Southern white Gentile on the litigation team that won Brown versus Board of Education. So Charles Black, although not a government servant, had played a very important role as a lawyer, winning Brown versus Board of helping Thurgood Marshall win Brown versus Board of Education, and as a great scholar. So, so Dellinger was always very respectful of people who came before the greats, Hugo Black um, uh, on the court, but um, Charles Black in the academy, um, Guido Calabresi um, at Yale Law School, another Hugo Black clerk, clerk and, and fellow um, Catholic liberal. So very respectful of people who came before him, very generous of the people who came after him, um, and, and, and a champion of people like Neil Katyal and, and, and Don Johnson and Dahlia Lithwick and, and yours truly. But he was so fun to hang out with and talk with, and, um, and, and he was such a great storyteller. So, so he comes to Yale Law School to give a, a presentation while he's working in government. And this is at the time when Paula Corbin Jones has sued the sitting president of the United States, Bill Clinton, for a kind of sexual harassment-like incident that occurred when Clinton was the governor of Arkansas. And Neil Katyal and I, in fact, as, as our audience has heard, kind of wrote something together about that. Um, um, and the New Republic actually gave it a horrible headline. And, mm-hmm. and we talked about all that. They, they, called, they, they gave the headline, Pounding Paula, which I just absolutely loathe. Um, yeah, stop to, repeating uh, it on the podcast. <laughs> you're giving it well, more, only more, because you're this, giving it this, more this play is, than it deserves. Yeah, because I want everyone who ever, because the internet is is out there forever. I just want everyone to know that was not me. That was not Neil. Okay. So I asked Dellinger when he came to the law school, I said, you know, you're you're working in the administration. Are you um, involved in this litigation at all? Involving press? And he looked at me and he smiled. And, And again, this is, you know, in front of a whole audience, he says, no. When he's getting girls, he's on his own. <laughs> so he had a sense of humor. He said, which reminds me of a story. Because he said, this is Southerners. He says, I was at the laundromat the other day, and two gals were talking um, about um, uh, the president. Um, and I was just, you know, in the front of the line. And, and one of them says to the other, that old Bill, he's a hard dog to keep on the porch. You know, so, so he, was, he was so fun and cool to be around. Um, and now... I'm pulling some of those things together, um, and uh, I'm hoping that we can just share with our audience um, the last op-ed 
uh, that Walter um, wrote. It, it turns out we now know just a couple of weeks before his passing, it's in the New York Times, and it's all about um, uh, uh, President Biden's promise, both as a um, uh, 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 Joe Biden's promise, both on the campaign trail and then reiterated um, uh, as president, and we now know um, redeemed as president, um, his pledge to pick a black woman to um, be on the Supreme Court. And um, just one final piece of backstory. In The Words That Made Us, in the last chapter, um, Adieus, I tell the story of the deaths of the six great founding fathers in chronological order. And in the story of Benjamin Franklin, um, it's actually a newspaper piece uh, that that Franklin writes weeks before his death, and it's a newspaper essay basically urging America to end slavery. Um, and here's what I just say about that. Uh, and I really thought about that, you know, and I wrote the book obviously a couple of years ago, um, and it was published a year ago, um, well before Walter's passing. But here's what I say Benjamin Franklin's essay ran in the March 25th, 1790 issue of Philadelphia's Federal Gazette. Less than a month later, he was dead at age 84, and his countrymen began to see, with hindsight, the special significance of the words that he likely knew were his last. His playful piece was also deadly serious. It was satire of a certain sort. His playful piece was also deadly serious. They were his dying words to America. And now we're going to hear what we now know in retrospect to be Walter Dellinger's dying words to America. Walter Dellinger knew he had actually a medical condition. Um, and he needed, I think, a lung transplant. He could have gotten one because he was very, he, at the end of his life, he was very wealthy, um, very well connected. He could have jumped the queue um, and gotten it. He died at age 80. He did not do that because he thought that that was not, I think, the right and proper thing to do. He's a very, you know, high-minded, moral, righteous person. Um, so, um, and I had no idea when I re um, read that op-ed, uh, any, any of this. And one of my biggest regrets, I'm sharing this with the audience, is I, I told Andy, read this piece when it came out, I told my, my students, I actually had my students, you know, um, post the piece um, uh, on on. on, on uh, the, the class discussion blog, and I had made a mental note to send Walter a note saying, wow, this was a really good piece. Um, but I just kind of, you know, forgot to do it. Um, um, one thing, you know, led to another, and I never did it. So I never actually told Walter what I real how much I, you know, I, I was impressed, wowed really um, by this piece. So that was my, my mistake. So tell the audience, like, you know, don't, don't forget to do these things, you know, the, the, just the, um, the, 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 just, you know, reach out to, 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 to friends, especially in this time of COVID and just connect. And then after we go through it, I'll read you one thing that see, and Walter actually did do that sort of thing for me. And I failed to, to reciprocate this one time. I, I had done it on other occasions, but um, I'll just tell you some of the email correspondence, but let's first read this piece because um, it's really great lawyering in my view. And it's Walter Dellinger at his best. So I'll read some of it, and as I read it, uh, Akil will interrupt me and point out why what I just read was an example of something that uh, was, was notable and excellent. 
Now, the title, which, of course, he may not have written, um, is, uh, Yes, the Supreme Court Should Look Like the Country by Walter Dellinger. And then the byline here is, Walter Dellinger, an emeritus professor at Duke Law School, served as head of the Office of Legal Counsel and as acting Solicitor General of the United States under President Bill Clinton. President Biden will soon announce a black woman as his nominee for the Supreme Court. Conser- uh, but, but, look, that's such a crisp, short sentence. And there's such a directness there. I mean, you know, Neil was telling us about oral argument, you have to count seconds and even fractions of seconds, he said. It's just very clear and direct. It's going to be a black woman. So even read that again, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's Lincolnian. President Biden will soon announce a black woman as his nominee for the Supreme Court. Good. Honest. Conservative commentators have criticized this plan, calling it, quote, unprecedented and unnecessary, unquote, and saying that it, quote, elevates skin color over qualifications. Unquote. Okay, so he's already now identifying, you know, the uh, criticism and um Who's doing the criticism? Conservatives, what kind of criticism they're making? This is unprecedented, blah, blah, blah. And and ideally, he's going to respond to it. But, you know, a clear statement of the case for a sentence. Because um, if you're arguing before the Supreme Court, you've got to actually get your points out fast. And here's the counter argument, your honors. And then we're waiting for his response. So did some senators, among them Ted Cruz of Texas, who called Mr. Biden's plan offensive and an insult to black women. New paragraph. There is, however, a long and important tradition of presidents taking into consideration the demographic characteristics of prospective justices, including geographic background, religion, race, and sex, to ensure that the Supreme Court is and remains a representative institution in touch with the varied facets of American life. Okay, so, um, because I kept interrupting you, the previous sentence... He is picking a fight, as it were, posthumously with Jesse Helms, except Jesse Helms is now named Ted Cruz, a Southern white conservative. You know, this is in part a debate, you know, um, within the Southland among whites, you see, and, and Charles Black and Hugo Black and Walter Dellinger on one side and Jesse Helms and Ted Cruz, maybe not so much. So that was the previous sentence. Um, um, he's picking he's at, even at the end. He's, he, he's standing for something and therefore standing against something and someone. And um, he's already, remember, they said it's unprecedented. That, you know, that was, you know, that's the critique. And he's saying, actually, it's utterly precedented. And it's justified, he says. But so he's already beginning to tell us, oh, um, this has been done before. And he continues to do that. He says, more fundamentally, our history shows that the process of reaching out to expand the personal backgrounds of the justices has often produced stellar jurists who made historic contributions to the court and our judicial system. Great, so he's going to give us history lesson now, and he knows what he's talking about, we hope. And, and he, in fact, he does, but you know, just the reader as the reader's going through, okay, you're going to tell me something. You're going to actually give me some facts. Take, for example, President Ronald Reagan's nomination of Sandra Day O'Connor. Okay, stop, stop right there. He speaks conservative, does Dellinger. He grows up in the Southland. He knows how conservatives think. The first thing that you'd want to do um, to try to appeal to a conservative might be to say, you know, Ronald Reagan. 
Okay. Now that, that might not persuade the Trumpists. Okay. But for a certain generation, especially his generation, Ronald Reagan is the gold standard. Okay. And so he's going to begin to tell us about, you know, R- Ronald Reagan. And, and, and like, this isn't like monkeys on a typewriter, you know, this is because he's really good at what he does. Every sentence actually click, click, click fits into a beautiful legal and rhetorical structure. So, and, and rhetoric in part, rhetoric has a bad name it's a, um, in some circles. It's a great classical tradition and it's about, it's the art of persuasion. And, you know, as Aristotle and others teach us, it's about logos, pathos, and ethos. It's about making logical arguments. It's about making arguments about who we are as a, as a community. It's about making sometimes emotional appeals of a certain sort. So, and well, Dellinger is going to have all of those, um, but ethos, who are we? You know, we are a people in part defined by our, our, our presidential greats. And if I'm trying to persuade conservatives, I'm going to actually want to tell you about Ronald Reagan. By the way, talking about persuasion and uh, Aristotle and so forth, there's a, a book by uh, which I recommend called Saving Persuasion, a Defense of Rhetoric and Judgment uh, by Yale professor Brian Garston. Um, and, um, and that's the sort of thing, audience members, that you'll get lots of if you do ever scholar. That's true. Um, as others have recently noted, Reagan made a campaign promise similar to Mr. Biden's over 40 years ago to name the first woman to the Supreme Court. Some suggest that Reagan's pledge is different because he had a list that included men. Of course he did. The administration's conservative activists urged on him the names of conservatives such as Robert Bork and Antonin Scalia. But Reagan was steadfast. He promised a woman, and he nominated a woman. Okay, so... Some people have said that was different because it wasn't an exclusive list. Um, he said, well, other people were on the list, but at the end of the day, he did what he said he was going to do, basically, which is pick a woman. Some will suggest that Mr. Biden will be choosing from a smaller set of potential nominees than Reagan did when he determined to choose Justice O'Connor from half the population. That point fails to account for the scarcity of female lawyers when Reagan made his commitment. The prime age for Supreme Court nominees is between 45 and 60 years old. That meant that Reagan was choosing from among those who entered law schools between roughly 1943 and 1958. In 1958, 3.1% of law school students were women. In 2020, women made up 54% of law students in the United States. Wow, brilliant. You know, he's saying at the time, if you said you were going to pick a woman, that's 3% of the relevant pool. Today, if you say you're going to pick a black woman, that might be actually 6% of the relevant pool or 5%. You know, and and he remembers this. He was there. I think it's just sort of beautiful, fact-based argument and, and, and persuasion. Of course, I would say that in order to be persuaded by this argument, you have to believe that Reagan did something that was that was worth emulating. And that's because he is saying it's not unprecedented and conservatives need to understand that they're, you know, that, that, that the person that Ted Cruz would have said, it, you know, it, is, it was his patron saint did it first. Even for the relatively few female lawyers of the right age in 1981, systematic discrimination had excluded them from the usual credentials possessed by Supreme Court nominees, such as major law firm partnerships and federal appeals court judgeships. Thus, Reagan necessarily had to expand the range of backgrounds from which to find the best woman. 
That expanded search led him to Justice O'Connor, in all likelihood the first intermediate state court judge ever elevated to the U.S. Supreme Court. And so not- he's he, he's showing an awareness that there's been discrimination in America, and we have to take that into account if we're actually going to be true to our best selves. And 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 John Ely, you know, I, I talked about earlier. Um, uh, I talked about affirmative action, and Walter Dellinger was very much aware every day of the structural inequalities that he had seen with his own eyes. Well, he's also he's also. Uh, taking another argument on because he's saying that uh, his phrasing Reagan necessarily had to expand the range of backgrounds from which to find the best woman. So in other words, he's not saying, okay, he had to look at people that were inferior candidates uh, in order to find a woman. He's saying that he was looking for the best woman. And to do that, you had Mm -hmm. to expand the range of backgrounds because of this so, mm-hmm. so he's not. Mm-hmm. So he's t- he's implicitly taking on another argument that that he would somehow be have been nominating an inferior candidate. In order and to- he's also saying, in effect, that you don't have to have been a fe- sitting federal court of appeals judge or something like that. Remember, the person for whom he clerked was a very very impressive Hugo Black, but but um, didn't have you know Felix Frankfurter's academic credentials. In nominating her, he brought to the court a woman who had performed a range of legal jobs other than practicing at major firms and had juggled children and a career. She took her children in strollers to campaign door-to-door for Republicans. Justice O'Connor had been a state senator in Arizona and served for a time as that body's majority leader. These experiences gave her a pragmatic perspective and unique legal skills, making her an outstanding addition to the Supreme Court. The Senate voted 99 to 0 to confirm her. And you're also hearing in that he understands that lives of women are especially complicated because of their um, uh, roles as, as, as mothers. This is someone who was raised by a single mother, Walter Dellinger is. The key point is not that Reagan did it too. It is that Reagan was right to commit to naming a woman. Paying atten- Beautiful. Beautiful. Paying attention to demographics can strengthen, not weaken, the judiciary. Had Reagan not pledged to name a woman, it is unlikely he would have had a search that produced Justice O'Connor, a nominee who turned out to be as influential a justice as William J. Brennan, who, by the way, was chosen by President Dwight Eisenhower in 1956 because he wanted a Northeastern Catholic. Another, you know, nice reminder about, you know, a Republican icon, although the Republican Party has moved very considerably. Um, uh, and, of course, Dellinger, as a Catholic, would especially you know, be attentive to the, the, the Catholic angle. Reagan's fulfilled pledge was not unusual. From the court's earliest days, presidents considered it essential that justices represent various regions of the country. For example, according to the Supreme Court scholar David M. O'Brien, from Justice John Rutledge's nomination in 1789 until Justice Hugo Black's retirement in 1971, with the exception of Reconstruction. Presidents ensured that there was always a Southerner, which meant a Southern white male, on the bench. So the so-called Southern seat, and of course he would be aware of that um, as a Southerner himself, and indeed, as we've talked about, someone who clerked for Hugo Black, um, who occupied, quote, the Southern seat on the court. Most recently, in 2020, President Donald Trump publicly committed to choose a woman who turned out to be Amy Coney Barrett, 
to, cho- to fill Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's seat. This practice of considering prospective justices' backgrounds and demographic characteristics engaged in by presidents of both parties over the decades is not some form of quota designed merely to appease political constituencies. Rather, it stems from bedrock principles of democratic governance. Hang on just a second. Um, Before we get into that whole thing, which is great, uh, I know it's going to be great. Um, Note that, you know, he's aware that not all conservatives are Reagan conservatives. So he's actually, this is a nod even to the Trumpists. Um, uh, And, and, um, and it's a a lovely uh, tip of the hat to Amy Coney Barrett, basically saying she belongs on the court. So um, good for him. He's trying to persuade. He's trying to, you know, re, 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 you know, reach everyone. So just to go to this, to this, uh, to make this argument, he says, rather it stems from bedrock principles of democratic governance. After mm-hmm. all, the Supreme Court exercises immense power to issue decisions that affect and bind all Americans. For that power to be legitimate and for Americans to continue placing faith in the court, its members must be representative of all of America. Mr. Biden recognized precisely this point when he explained during his campaign that the Supreme Court should look like the country. Moreover, as the visiting Georgetown history professor Thomas Zimmer put it, Biden's public pledge represents an affirmation of multiracial pluralism. That's why it matters. It's an acknowledgement that the traditional dominance of white men was never the result of meritocratic structures, but of a discriminatory system that needs to be dismantled. That's a quote. Yes, Mr. And, and he, remember, he is a white man. So he, you know, but he's he 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 he's aware that in some respects he's been the the beneficiary of perhaps unfair advantages. Yes, Mr. Biden could have made a less categorical statement about his selection process, but that is not Joe Biden. By the time he doubled down on naming a black woman, he knew how exemplary a group he would have to choose from. He knew he was going to do it, so he said so directly. Such candor is typical of him. That, that's your client. He, this, is, this is not the professor. Who, this is the lawyer who has a client and understands the client and, and is just being honest um, with us all about who the client is and and. There's an, there was an honesty to what Biden said, kind of maybe uh, um, a kind of bluntness. And there's, a, there's an honesty in, in this defense. It, it kind of rings true. It's, it's the, I think, the best thing that you can say if, if that's who your client is. He says, that's not Joe Biden. Biden is going to just be blunt. And, but he's going to say, but even before he said it, he knew that he'd be picking from a good group of candidates. It's interesting to contrast that, though, with what he had said about Reagan earlier, you know, because he talked about Reagan's list, and essentially what he said was, okay, Reagan made a list, but he never intended to consider <laughs> the people that were on the list. Yeah. And, and then he went on to say, well, but he, you know, he did what he said he was going to do, so that's implying a certain integrity at the same time as he's saying that he, he didn't mean what he said. Whereas, so, so if you want to contrast, so he's giving Biden the same points that he gave to Reagan, um, and and then some, because he's not applying that. that the, so he's turning um, the criticism of the fact that many people have said Biden. He, well, he, he could have black, picked a black woman, but why did he have to say he was going to do it? Yeah, exactly. That's what a lot of people do say. He says, well, Biden's going to going to be blunt. Biden, remember, you know, said 
three weeks ago, I think Putin's going to invade, you know, and, oh, it will be different if he, you know, if it's just partial, he was actually talking about the Nets. And so, so that's Joe Biden. He's actually just going to tell you, you know, what he thinks. The truth is, back to the article, the truth is that there are extraordinarily accomplished and credentialed lawyers of all races, ethnicities, sexes, and religions. Though nowhere near perfect, the American legal community has made strides to eradicate the discrimination that has long pervaded the profession, meaning that more women and people of color are graduating from top law schools, earning judicial clerkships, and working in prestigious positions in government, uh, law firms, and academia, and otherwise possessing the experiences that make for wise judging. The black women who, pres- women who President Biden is reportedly considering for the Supreme Court, remember this was before the nomination, are all well-respected and highly qualified potential nominees with sterling credentials. Regardless of race, they should and very likely would be found on M- any Democratic president's shortlist. This list is but a small fraction of the extremely qualified women who could be chosen, black women who could be chosen. There are approximately 25,000 black female attorneys in America. There is every reason to believe that President Biden's nomination process will benefit by focusing on that extraordinary group for the next justice of the United States Supreme Court. That's it. Okay. So I think that's just great. Um, I don't think actually, Andy, um, as because we've we've spent so much time, I'm not sure we're going to be able to do justice to tell for Taylor and Charles Black. But but actually, we should just continue this series um, because I I do want um, our audience to 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 get a sense of, of of some of these extraordinary people. I've already begun to tell you a little bit about Telford Taylor. Oh, he's a Felix Frankfurt protege, and about Charles Black. Oh, he's my mentor and. Philip Bobbitt's mentor. I haven't told you about all of those folks, so maybe we can hold back on some of that because I do want to say a little bit. We promised to say a little bit about uh, uh, Katenshi Brown Jackson's nomination, how to think about it more broadly. But but just before we do that, uh, we just heard Dellinger's last words to America. If I could just share with our audience um, a couple of things that Dellinger from time to time just sent me, because you're, you're seeing his public greatness, but I just want you to just to hear a little bit. The private Walter Dellinger, who Andy reminds me a lot of you, because you're always sending me sweet little notes and of encouragement and, 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 and the rest, and I, and I so love you for that. Let me actually, though, um, uh, read, I'm not going to read yours, um, <laughs> but, but I am going to read Walter's. Here's one that he sent me. It meant, it really meant a lot to me when I received it. So this is an email that I received from Walter on November 22nd, 2013. Uh, The Senate of the United States had just really for the first time done a thing called the nuclear option. Harry Reid had um, by simple majority vote changed the rules such that there could be confirmation of various uh, judicial nominations by simple majority. And this would lead to um, three people getting put on the D.C. circuit, in fact, three Democratic appointees. Um, And remember that Dellinger himself had been kind of thwarted um, uh, from uh, being formally confirmed as Solicitor General by kind of Senate shenanigans of a certain sort, somewhat similar to the, the filibuster. Um, so here's what, and, and our audience will remember that I had been, along with Gary Hart, for years kind of crusading for this nuclear option idea. Um, and just out of the blue, 
um, Walter sends me this note later that day, which, and, and no one else, of course, other than Walter no, had noticed this. Um, the subject line was congratulations. Akil, it is very rare that a scholar has an extraordinary real-time impact on an important public policy question. And you've done that. I've never told you that I found the chapter in your book on the filibuster to be astoundingly original and convincing. This is a signal week for progressive values. As one who believes in the power of government to do good and to ameliorate the harshness of inequality, I celebrate the fact that government will once again come to be closer to being able to take positive action. But beyond that, I believe in democratic principles. And thus, I am reconciled to the fact that majorities will sometimes take actions with which I disagree. I don't blink that away. I accept it. I was struck by the fact that in all the sharp debate of the reform of the filibuster rules, there was almost no argument that the action was actually unlawful or unconstitutional. That's a tribute to the fact that the depth of your analysis was literally unanswerable. I'm not at all sure you will ever get the credit you deserve for this. But in my study, you are tonight, you are being honored tonight, Walter. You know, like how sweet to just go out, you know, to, to, to even notice that, to send me a note. Um, more recently, um, as you know. Well, I just um, want to comment on that note also, because it's one thing to, as someone who, who tries to write meaningful notes of congratulations, it doesn't just say, you know, well done. It actually makes an argument. He actually went out of his way to make the case that you deserve the praise by saying, you know, no one actually raised a legal argument against it. That's, you know, that took some thought. It wasn't just well done. And he went out of his way to say, I understand that what goes round comes round. Um, and, and so there are going to be times when we're on the losing end of this, but we, you and I, Akil, are principled small d Democrats. And, and when we, we, we are going to do it now and it will be done, you know, by the other side. And, and that's just fair. There's um, a little John Hart Ely in that, isn't there? And you see actually that, um, uh, uh, Charles Black with all of this. So Walter was also on the um, Biden uh, 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 Judicial Reform Commission and um, he had actually sent me a note saying, I'm going to, you know, make sure that you have a chance to, to make your arguments. And then when I did, you know, uh, uh, make my arguments in, in, in uh, July, we, we did an episode on that, Witness in the Center Square or something. You know, he went out of his way, he just sent me a very sweet note um, saying, you know, a fantastic job, call me this week uh, to discuss, you were brilliant. He did, you don't have to do stuff like that. And and if you read Dahlia Lithwick's tribute, he, he did that to Dahlia. If you read Neil Katyal or talk to Neil, he did that for Neil. He, he did. Uh, I'm sure Don Johnson would say the same thing, D-A-W-N. Um, he did that for Pam Harris, one of his protégés, Pamela Harris. He did um, who is now a judge on the, uh, the United States Court of Appeals. He did that for so many people. And, and very interestingly, a huge percentage of us are not white men. Okay, Neil Katyal, Akhil Amar, Don Johnson, Pamela Harris, Dahlia Lithwick. It's, it's really interesting in, in, in that regard. His son, um, Walter, as I, uh, his son Hampton, as I mentioned, was, is one of my favorite students of all time. And when Hampton was recently picked to, by Joe Biden to be in the Office of Legal Policy, which helps pick judges, I um, reached out to 
um, to Walter. When, when he was named for the, the, the Biden commission, I sent him a note saying, I'm so happy to see that you will once again serve our country in an important position. And here's what he said in response. He's so generous. Thank you, Akil. Your email is timely. I was intending to reach out to you. I'd very much want to hear your views, have your views. And if, as I think will be the case, that there will be public hearings, I'll consider my contribution to make sure that you have a venue to give your thoughts. Warm regards. So he's saying, you know, my job will be to make sure that you get to make your case. Like, what a generous soul, especially when you understand all the things that he has himself done. You know, he wasn't stuffed with himself at all. Um, when, when Hampton got this job, I sent him a nice note. Just the way I, I sent, you know, w- would to you if, if Matthew or Caroline, uh, Caroline or, or Rachel, you know, had, had, had some great um, achievement or something, because he took such pride in his family. Um, uh, so anyway, those, that, that's Walter Dellinger. Yes, and we should come back to Charles Black and Telford Taylor in our, our next episode is at least part yes. of it. Yes, um, um, I, 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 I didn't think we could do the whole episode on Walter, but of course that was idiotic of me because he, he, he was that large in life and, I, and, I, and, and now is the time you know, uh, to, to remember that largeness. May his, may, may his memory be a blessing. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's worthwhile to, to use that last uh, op-ed to see what, what it is that you admire in, in writing and in an op-ed. But and of course I, he would have I been... Suspect, and I suspect he may have known that this might be his last important thing. I mean, he might have. That's not ridiculous to think. And of course he would have been quite happy to see the nomination of Katenji Brown-Jackson, um, which took place this week. So... Um, I think we'll have more to say as the confirmation process unwinds, but did you have any, any initial brief uh, reactions and thoughts to this to this nomination? Um, I don't think I know her particular way. I say it that way because we both clerked for Stephen Breyer, and there have been um, clerkship reunions, although I haven't been able to go to all of them because they've often been down in D.C., and I've had family matters to attend to in, in New Haven. Um, but I have spoken to other members of the Breyer clerkship circle, people like the dean of the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Ted Ruger. I was just at Penn yes, um, uh, uh, yesterday. We're recording this on Saturday. Um, uh, and um, I was at Penn on Friday and bumped into Ted. Uh, he clerked for Breyer. Um, I've talked to Neil Katyal. And they all tell me, um, the, the ones who know her better than do I, that she's a lovely, lovely person um, and that they're very, very happy for her and for the country. Um, and these are people that I really respect, like Neil and, and Ted. Here's what I can say more generally. I wrote a piece um, a decade ago called the uh, 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 Drawing Attention at, to a Phenomenon that I called the Judicialization of the Judiciary. It appeared in the Atlantic uh, under the title Clones on the Court. Um, and it was actually, um, in an earlier version, it, had, it was a part of it, another piece. Um, and it was talking about the um, similarity of background from a certain point of view of, of recent appointees to the court. Take a step back. Let's just remind our audience about Scorpions and, uh, and the Noah Feldman book. That was about the court in mid-century, the court that decided Brown versus Board of Education on that court, only one of the nine justices had been a, um, a judge 
before being a justice. And um, he, this, that person has done other things as well. And and no member of our audience, I think, would probably even be able to to remember this person's name. Our audience just try to try to think about who was on that court in Brown versus Board of Education, and and, and you're going to think about Earl Warren, and he, as we've just heard, was a governor. And Hugo Black, and he was a senator. And Robert Jackson was solicitor general and attorney general. Um, and Felix Frankfurter was a law professor. And William Douglas was a law professor. And we could just go down the list. Um, one, only one of the nine, I think, was a, a, a court of had been a court of appeals judge, and he had been other things as well. And he was not one of the more prominent people on um, the, the, the court. And his name is Sherman Minton. He'd also been a senator. Okay. Now you contrast that. And they, and they hadn't all gone to fancy schools. Um, uh, Hugo Black, two years at University of Alabama. Uh, Robert Jackson, again, um, I think only two years, and I think at University of Albany Law School or something like that. They, they basically kind of apprenticed their way into legal practice. Um, uh, Earl Warren didn't go to a fancy law school. Okay. Um, and again, eight of the nine hadn't been judges of any sort before they were justices. And they generated Brown versus Board of Education and, and other landmark decisions. Now, today, eight of the nine justices were sitting federal court of appeals judges at the time of their appointment. Um, and the ninth, Elena Kagan, um, was a very judicial, had a very judicialized office as a solicitor general, which is often uh, a position uh, uh, referred to as the tenth justice. It's um, um, the solicitor general has an office in the Supreme Court building. In fact, so eight sitting federal appellate judges, um, including Stephen Breyer, um, at the time of their appointment, and Elena Kagan. And when Breyer rotates off, and Justice Katenji. Brown Jackson takes her position, as I think she will, um, that eight to one will remain in place because she, um, too, is a sitting federal um, appellate judge at the time of her nomination. So that's what I call the judicialization of the judiciary. And I say, oh, it begins even earlier than that. It begins at an amazingly early age. Almost all of the justices went to a fancy college and from there went to a fancy law school and from there almost all of them began by doing a judicial clerkship um maybe two maybe three judicial clerkships sort of within the judiciary and sort of moved up within the judiciary rather than moving across from the senate um hugo black from um the governorship earl warren um, from uh, the Academy, Felix Frankfurter, um, William Douglas. Um, even as late as Sandra Day O'Connor, you see Dellinger saying it was becoming increasingly traditional to pick maybe a federal court of appeals judge or something, but Reagan didn't do that. He picked, so she, now she was a judge, but a state um, judge, and not a state Supreme Court justice, a state appellate court, intermediate court, but she was also a Paul, a, a certain sort of a political figure, majority leader of the Arizona Senate. Dellinger is noticing that fact about what Reagan did. So who is Katenji Brown Jackson? She went to Harvard College, um, where she graduated, I believe, magna cum laude, and Harvard Law School, um, where you, your son Matthew went, where she graduated cum laude, and, and I think five of the current justices are graduates of Harvard Law School. She was a lower court judge um, uh, as, and, and a court of appeals judge, like Sonia Sotomayor, she clerked um, for the Supreme Court 
you know, for Steve Breyer, um, a huge percentage of the current justices themselves had have, have been law clerks. She clerked for the very, you know, uh, justice that she's uh, likely to replace, as was true for um, um, Brett Kavanaugh. Our audience can go back and remember those those earlier episodes. So six of the, the justices clerked for Supreme Court justices, you know, and a seventh um, clerked for a prominent judge, Leonard Garth, that's Sam Alito, and, and two um, didn't, Clarence Thomas and Sonia Sotomayor. Okay. Um, Ketenji Brown-Jackson fits in this tradition of um, a Supreme Court clerk, um, and also the, the, the fancy schools and, and, and the top grades. Um, in that respect, she's not so different from Stephen Breyer or Merrick Garland or Elena Kagan, or we could keep going down the list. You see Brett Kavanaugh, Neil Gorsuch. Here's what I wrote about this a while back, because um, there was some discussion, because of the three finalists, um, one of them hadn't gone to a fancy law school, uh, Judge Childs in South Carolina. Two did go to fancy law schools. Uh, um, they both went to Harvard. Leander Kruger and, and Sanjay Brown Jackson, I think they both went to Harvard undergrad, uh, which Andy, you and I have to admit is a pretty fancy place. Um, and Leander Kruger went to Yale. Just, just to law say, school. I haven't gone on the record as admitting that. <laughs> uh, Leander Kruger went to Yale Law School, where she was editor in chief of the Yale Law Journal and clerked for the Supreme Court for John Paul Stevens and and Cassandra uh, Brown Jackson, as you just um, uh, heard again and again, uh, clerked for for Brian himself. Here's what I wrote when Gar- Merrick Garland was being nominated, and I'm a I'm a huge Merrick Garland fan, and 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 this is what I wrote, but and it built on this earlier piece that I wrote about the judicialization of the judiciary. Um, here's what I said: So hooray for Abraham Lincoln and his for his metaphoric children. Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Merrick Garland. But here's the difference between Lincoln um, and them and the dark side of the rise of modern meritocracy. Lincoln did not go to a fancy college or law school. In fact, he had less than a year's formal education from cradle to grave. He rose late in life. By contrast, Obama, Hillary Clinton, and Garland are all Ivy Leaguers. So was Scalia. So are all the current justices. This was, again, in early 2016. Garland himself is a double Harvard grad. To be sure, he was a scholarship kid, not unlike Obama, Clarence Thomas, and Sonia Sotomayor at various stages of their illustrious academic careers. But the gateway to the modern Supreme Court seems to narrow early in life. Apparently, late bloomers and non-Ivies need not apply. This narrowing is happening not just at the court, but also in the presidency. And this was written before the two Trump elections. Each of our four most recent presidents attended Harvard, Yale, or both, as did the runners-up in five of the seven most recent elections, Dukakis, H.W. Bush, Gore, Kerry, Romney. The last time Americans voted for a president without a Harvard or Yale graduate on the ballot was 1984. Um, and again, that, the most recent election wasn't true but um, in 2020, but, but it was in 2016 with Tim Kaine and Hillary Clinton. If we include vice presidential candidates in our tally, we have to go all the way back to 1968 to find a year where none of the top four candidates went to one of these two schools. Again, 2020 was an exception, but, but not 2016. Obama, Garland, and Clinton, that is Hillary Clinton, thus embody a brave new world in which we are all formally born equal, but inequality begins to set in quite early in life based on early grades, early test scores, and early extracurriculars. 
New world elites are not quite the same as old world elites, but the emerging schoolocracy makes me nervous, even as I myself have been a huge beneficiary. Admissions officers goof, and not all roses bloom early. And here's now to wrap everything up. This schoolocracy is an advantage um, for certain people who, you know, aren't born uh, straight white men. You know, it's an advantage if you can actually prove yourself in um, these um, hallowed halls, if your name is Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton or uh, Akhil Amar or Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Um, Anil Katyal, Walter Dellinger, a scholarship kid, um, Sonia Sotomayor, Clarence Thomas. So um, there's a negative side to this. You know, it seems very exclusionary, but there's also a way in which actually people just automatically can say, oh, she must be pretty darn smart because she graduated magna cum laude at Harvard and uh, cum laude from Harvard Law School. Um, right. And it can be a, a, you know, a counter to implicit bias. Yeah, I think that... Uh... If I were to take your, your argument at face value that you make in writing, you're comparing, you know, this to Lincoln, current people to Lincoln, saying, well, Lincoln, you know, didn't go to law school and, and this sort of thing. But, uh, and, the, and now people go to fancy schools. But you also have to admit, I think, that, that Ivy League schools now are way more meritocratic in admission this, this, these days than they were in Lincoln's day. And, the and hold on, so let, let me finish. So, you know, it's true that the decisions are being made early in, you know, in, in life, as you say, but then after they go to their Ivy League school or as an undergraduate, then they go to law school, so they have another layer of merit layering, um, and then they do the clerkships that you identify, which is another layer of, of merit filtering. So, mm-hmm. and, and in fact, you know, Walter Dellinger's op-ed is an attempt to address a criticism that non-meritocratic criteria were being used to choose. And now he he meets that criticism, but still, um, it, it's there. And so, you know, it, you've identified this trend, but I don't think you've established that it's a bad thing. And also, of course, there are exceptions, as we saw in the case of of Amy Amy Coney Barrett, a graduate of Notre Dame, with fine school, but not Ivy League. Um, and, and of course, Sandra Day O'Connor, as as uh, was pointed and, out by Walter Dellinger. And two or three quick things. One, you're absolutely right that it's no, it's not your father's or your grandfather's Ivy League. Yale Law School this week just announced that about fifty um, kids um, out of a group are going to get complete free rides um, if they um, if your if your fa- if your family income is sort of near the poverty line. Yale Law School is now absolutely free. Um, which is great. And I say, we got to keep doing that. So point one, um, point two, um, I said, I'm a huge beneficiary of it. Um, I'm all, it makes me nervous in part because admissions officers, as I said, goof, and I'm one of those admissions officers and not everyone's an early bloomer. Um, um, but, but I'm a huge beneficiary of that. So that's the second point. Third, Sandra O'Connor graduated in the top uh, 10% order of the coif um, um, at Stanford, you know, a fancy school. It, um, Notre Dame is actually a very impressive school. Um, and actually everyone, you know, in, in the law world knows, oh, she got into um, University of Chicago Law School and chose Notre Dame instead. You know, and that's a little mark. Oh, you got into top school. Oh, mm-hmm. and of course, she clerked on the Supreme Court. So there are all these little markers that folks in the law world know about. 
Um, and um, so part of the podcast, as you've explained in the beginning, is to t- talk a little bit about the, the legal ecosystem. And I, I think we've actually talked about a lot of different little parts of it today. So thanks. Yes, thank you. And and one, one other point I might make about Ketanji Brown-Jackson, which, may, which differentiates her from recent candidates, is that she was a public defender. Very few of the nominees for the Supreme Court in recent years have been public defenders. A nice point now. Um, uh, uh, I mentioned that John Hart Ely uh, did that before he um, uh, joined the, the, the Yale Law School faculty. Mm-hmm. Very nice point. And there'll be more to discuss on, on her. And we, this is a, one of our longest podcasts. So we're going to skip the question this time and get to it next time. And um, maybe promise. talk about Telford Taylor and Charles Black, mm-hmm. um, other role models. Um, so lots. <laughs> stay tuned. Yes, yeah, so as the as the nomination process uh, moves forward, there'll be plenty to talk about, and I suspect the next week will be part of it. So thank you, and see you next week. Mm-hmm.